our nation made up of you and me must live under God. Somewhere God's going to find somebody that he can trust. Somebody that can turn the tide, that can change the tone, that can set a new direction for this country. In 1855, a Sunday school teacher showed up at the business where one of his students was working. He was a young man who was a Unitarian by his raising. He was biblically illiterate, and he was just barely articulate. He couldn't hardly put sentences together. But that Sunday school teacher led a young boy, 18 years of age, named D.O. Moody to the Lord. God took someone that we would not have chosen, someone that we would have never expected and used him to do incredible ministries that still live on today, although he died in the 1800s. Who will God raise up? What man, what woman, what young person, what child will God raise up that will turn the tide and get this nation back? When I read the book of Judges, I see a nation in decline and in bondage and in captivity. And I see a lot of similarities between that nation and America today because we have let things slip out of control. We are in a crisis mode, not just because it's an election year, but because over the last 50 to 60 years, we have let things go unchecked and we have not been desperate enough to seek the Lord to find out if he would send a deliverer to save us. Most folks would have written off Gideon. You see, God doesn't see us for what we are, but for what we could become. It's not what we are, it's where we headed. What are we going to become? How will God use us? How will God change us? A young man who was, uh, came to this church when he was in middle school, the first night he came, uh, he came and showed up for RAs, and some of the folks in our church thought he was a little too big for his size, so they made him stay outside for RAs. But when we played basketball after that, they brought him in. See, somebody didn't like the way Stephen Durbin looked. He was a kid off the streets. He was a kid from multiple divorces in his home. But God had a purpose for him. Today, Stephen announced that he is leaving his church in uh, Memphis, and he is going to be the pastor of an extension campus of First Baptist West Palm Beach. What if we had not cared enough as a church to invest in a young man that some people thought wasn't worth investing in. What if we'd have just looked at the outside and failed to see the heart? If we have that attitude and if we have that mentality, the reality is we'll overlook a Gideon, the youngest in the least tribe, 
the last one anyone would have suspected. Judges chapter 6. This is the first of two messages with Gideon, an unexpected hero. Judges 6 and verse 1. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east would go against them. Verse 6, so Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Now this is the fourth time they've been in bondage. The Midianites had a new weapon. It's not what you're about to see, but they had a new weapon. It was the camel. That was their weapon. Now, that's me and you all on a camel. Uh, in the 12th century, the camel was a mighty military weapon. It could move fast. It could travel with a full pack for three to four days without water. And it could attack. And Israel had no camels. They had no horses. They, were, they would have been at best foot soldiers. And so they would have used these mobile animals that could move quickly across the river, go plunder the land, load it up with the crops, and then go back over to the other side of Jordan. They could cover about 300 miles at a time without stopping. I mean, they could just go. And so the Midianites had this camel, <laughs> that was a weapon. It would have been equivalent to a tank up against people with nothing but pea shooters. And, and so Midian would come in. They, they didn't come and take over the land. They would stay off across the river on the other side. And then when harvest season came, they would race into the land. They would steal the crops. They would load the camels up with the crops and they would rush back out and live off the food that the people of Israel had produced until the time of the next harvest. And so Israel is in this battle with these people who are like locusts devouring the land. Now what's different about this fourth judgment is that God in the past, when they cried out, he sent a judge. This time God sent a prophet and the prophet delivered a message. And there's two things about this message. First of all, there is a difference between a cry for help and a true cry of repentance for sin. There's a difference between, I'm really uncomfortable. I don't like the shape I'm in. There's a difference between just a, a cry for help and a true cry of repentance. We have to have within our hearts and within our lives an understanding of a difference between crying out to God because we're uncomfortable and crying out to God because we know we've sinned against him. And our discomfort is because of our sin. Secondly, the prophet said, you're in the condition you're in because you've turned from God. And so they cried out to God in the past three and God sent a judge and they were delivered. Now they cry out to God and God sends a prophet and says, let me tell you why you keep going through this. You keep going through this because you've turned from God. And when you quit turning from God, the enemy will stop plundering your land. So there's a personal call from God in verses 11 through 16. Pick up in verse 11, if you will. Gideon was out uh, beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. 
Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which the fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. Now, think about this argument that Gideon is having here. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, now here he goes into his pity party and into his uh, nervousness and his indecisiveness. He says, I, I am the, uh, my family is the least in Manasseh and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Now you got to know that Gideon, he, he's the youngest, he's in the least tribe. He, he doesn't have a great opinion about himself or even his family. And he starts offering God these excuses, and he's, and he's indecisive. But, but we find him threshing wheat by beating it with a stick in the wine press. Now, that's not where you're supposed to thresh wheat. You thresh wheat out in the open so that the wind can blow the chaff away. Here's a man who is so scared of the Midianites that he's found a little cave. He's found a hole in a rock somewhere, and he's threshing out the wheat, hoping that the Midianites will not see him doing it and sweep down on him and take what little food he's got. And in this nervous, withdrawn, fearful state, God shows up. Now, there are a couple of things here. First of all, Gideon did not know that he was talking to an angel. He didn't know that. I mean, he just, he just thought it was a man that showed up and, you know, hail almighty man of valor. And he's got to be thinking, the last thing I think about myself is that I'm a mighty man of valor. He did not know that he was an angel. And he didn't know that it wasn't just an angel. It was the angel of the Lord. Now notice, Jesus in a pre-incarnate appearance, when you see the word, the angel of the Lord. It is primarily a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. He appears in a form that is recognizable. The angel of the Lord appears to the youngest in the tribe of the least. God knows where we are and God knows what we can become. Nobody in Gideon's family, nobody in Gideon's tribe, None of the tribe would have ever thought if God was going to deliver, he was going to take the least and the youngest. But that's exactly what he did. And God showed up and said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Not exactly what I would have called him. Not hiding out from the Midianites. His name means a hewer, which means he had some strength. He, he had a, the ability to work physically, but he wasn't acting in a very strong way during this time. Now, when you see that term, valiant warrior, hail, O valiant warrior, verse uh, 12, let me give you, in Joshua, that term refers to soldiers that are marching into the teeth of the enemy. When God calls somebody a valiant warrior, it is somebody that is storming into battle. Think of the contrast. Here's a man who is hiding and fearful that what little food he had was going to be stolen. And God says to him, you're a valiant warrior about to march into the teeth of the enemy. 
Secondly, it's used in Judges, as we'll see in the message in a few weeks by Jephthah, as a man of personal courage. So it's not just a valiant warrior ready to march into battle, but it is a person of personal courage which does not define Gideon at this moment in his life. But remember the first thing. God sees us not for what we are, but for what we can become. And God is looking at Gideon out ahead, and he says to him, go and deliver Israel. God has personally singled him out and called him. He deals with his inferiority and his insecurity and his self-confidence issues. Now, here's a thought that you need to plant somewhere in your head. Humility is more important than ability. Humility is more important than ability. Now, this is a passage we're all familiar with, but in 1 Corinthians 1, 26, he says, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Now Gideon, being a good Jew, would have known all the stories of the victories of the past. He, he would have known. In fact, he mentions it, you know, God delivered us out of Egypt. So he knows his Bible. He knows his Bible history. But he's gotten to the point, maybe because of the home in which he was raised, where he thinks that's ancient history. Those are old stories for another time. There's a sense of that going on in our country today. That the days of greatness, in fact, there is a sense in which people are telling us in education and in politics, we just can't be what we used to be. Really? Who decided that? We're not going to be great again. We, listen, we were as unprepared on a military standpoint when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor as we have ever been in our history. We were weak and unprepared and fought two crisis wars on two opposite extremes of the world and won at both of them. But you have people today that say, well, we can't fight one battle in Afghanistan. We can't fight one battle. You know what they're doing? They're planting seeds in a younger generation that says, you're just going to have to accept being second rate. And somebody had planted those seeds in Gideon. Because Gideon is looking around at his world and he thinks he's Midianites when all they've got is camels. I mean, if that's the best you got, I mean, the only thing camels do is win an ugly contest. I mean, that's the best they've got. And it's planted in his mind. Yeah, God did great things in the past, but I don't think God's going to do something. And he had lost hope that things would ever change. He had a defeatist attitude. By the way, I think there is a defeatist attitude going on in our country today. I don't know why. I don't know how to fix it. I know God's the only one that's going to change it. But here's what you need to understand. He, he thinks God used to work. God used to do great things. There were great miracles, but those days are over. And the truth that he needed to understand, it wasn't God that abandoned his people. 
It was his people that had abandoned God. Listen, church. If America goes down in defeat, it will not be because God has abandoned us. It will be because we have first abandoned him. We are arguing about things that my grandparents would have never thought we would be arguing about. We are talking about things that we would never have talked about even 50 years ago. And so if we are abandoned and if we do become a second-rate nation that can be pushed around by thugs and people who rattle their sabers, it will be because we have abandoned God, not because God has abandoned us. If God abandons us, it will be because we have first abandoned him. Verse 14, the Lord looked at him. And he gave him a promise, I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian. Now here's a guy who's got to be thinking, you know, I mean, I, I'm out here hiding. You know, I'm just trying to protect my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And there's no way that I can defeat Midian. Nobody's going to follow me. I'm the youngest. I'm the least. But, but what he needed to understand that he was not contending against flesh and blood. But there was an evil force behind Midian. And he needed to stand not in his strength, but he needed to stand in the strength of the Lord. And God had given him a promise. I will be with you. Now, folks, when God says, I'll be with you, by the way, God has said to everyone in this room, I will be with you. Amen. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So if we're having a pity party about where our lives are, we need to remember God said, I'm never going to leave you and I'm never going to forsake you. If you're a child of God, you don't need to be walking around in your pity. You need to be standing on God's promises. He says, I will be with you and I'm going to give Midian into your hands. Hudson Taylor said this, all of God's great men have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them and they counted on his faithfulness. Now Gideon had every reason to be overwhelmed. He was filled with a sense of inadequacy, but I want you to write down somewhere in the margin of your Bible, 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Secondly, there's a point of confirmation in verses 17 through 24. And there are two things here. First of all, there's a private confirmation, a private confirmation. And this is very important. There are some incredible lessons in Gideon. And one of the reasons why we ended the house of prayer with praying for the family is because of where I'm about to go with this message here. There's a private confirmation. There's a time of famine. God tells Gideon to prepare a feast. He follows all the instructions given to him in these verses 17 through 24. And he lays the meal down and the meal that he lays down becomes an offering. The angel of the Lord strikes it with his staff and the fire consumes the food. And immediately two things happen to Gideon. He's conscious of his sin and he's conscious of God's sovereignty. Look at what he says. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now he really knows who he's talking to. 
Because the angel of the Lord takes that staff of that feast that he's laid down. He's thinking, hmm, I'm going to make a meal here. And, and wow, it's all burned up. Can't send that back to the kitchen. But he became conscious of his sin. He realized who he was standing in front of, and he became conscious of God's sovereignty. And he built an altar there, and he called it Yahweh Shalom, the Lord of Peace. Now, isn't that an interesting term? He's about to go to war, and he calls the altar the Lord of Peace. You know why? Because we're always going to be at war until the Prince of Peace rules this earth. So there's a private confirmation. God says, I'm with you. Let me just show you. You do this. Let me show you what I can do. Then there's a public demonstration. He, he calls him to demonstrate his faith in front of his family. Now, he doesn't do it in front of them at first. Look at verse 25, a public demonstration. Judges 6, 25. Now, on the same night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Now that Asherah pole would have been about 20 feet tall. So he tells him to take the altar that apparently his own father had built and the pole, the Asherah pole, that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this stronghold in an orderly manner and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah which you shall cut down. I love that. God says take that idol, that Asherah pole and use it to burn up an offering to me because that's all it's good for. It's just good for firewood. People have been worshiping it. Now, now think about it. Gideon's dad has built this altar to Baal and the Asherah, this wooden pillar to the Canaanite goddess of fertility. And this is a, a village shrine, if you will. This is where they came to offer their false worship. And apparently Gideon's father was overseeing the false worship. So he's saying to Gideon, you go against your dad. Because your dad's not serving the Lord. Your dad is serving false gods. And I hear people sometimes that take submit to authority and children obey your parents to an extreme. Let me just give you a principle. If somebody tells you to do something outside of the will of the God, you disobey that. Amen. I don't care who tells you. If somebody tells you to do something in violation to the word of God, you don't have to submit to that. Now, I know people will disagree, but our allegiance is to God first. And if our allegiance is to anybody else and we think they're going to get to God by seeing our disobedience to God, we're fooling ourselves. And so he, he takes his first bull, his dad's bull. <laughs> you know, he didn't ask his dad, Dad, can I take your bull and kill it? <laughs> he takes it. And he offers it. Then he takes a second bull, seven years old, the same amount of time that they've been in bondage to the Midianites. And with both of those, he breaks the spell of the bondage. He sets his mind free and it sets him on a path to do what God has told him to do. Now, here are three truths that you need to see. 
Look at the passage and you'll see these truths. Number one, Baal must go before Midian can go. Baal must go before Midian can go. There is no victory in a divided heart. Until I get the Baal and the Asherah, the idols and the compromises out of my life, I cannot expect God to drive away the Midianites that stand and pursue me and attack me and seek constantly to defeat me. I can't do it. I, I can't live with compromise in this area and expect to have victory in another area. So there has to be a clean break. He said, tear it down. Use the wood from one to offer a sacrifice. Secondly, God's altar can't be built until Baal's altar is destroyed. God's altar cannot be built until Baal's altar is destroyed. We have to go to the altar and lay down the idols of our heart and the idols that stand in the way of our obedience to God if we're going to build an altar of worship to God. In fact, when you read the scriptures, one of the reasons why the altar is so important to me, everything about Abraham's life, the life of faith, everything about Abraham's life is marked by the places where he either built an altar to God or he did not build an altar to God. When he went to Egypt and told his wife to lie, to save his own hide, he didn't build an altar. You look at Abraham's life, and the steps of faith in Abraham's life are ordered by the altars that he built. We should have altars. We should have places where we mark it down that Baal has gone. And Baal always strives to entice us, to lure us, and to tempt us to love other gods and to love other things. But Baal has to go before the altar of God can be built. And thirdly, the place of obedience begins at home. Listen, if we can't obey God in our home, we're not going to obey God in the world. Amen. If we cannot do what God tells us to do in our homes, we can't do it anywhere else. That's why it is so important and sometimes very difficult to live out our lives in the home, especially if there are under, uh, unbelievers under your roof or you come from a background where people don't understand it and don't get it, let me just tell you something. Let me just give you a little, this is free advice. We've already taken the offering. I'm not going to take up one on this statement. It's hard to win your family to Jesus if you stay home because you got company in town. Amen. Because what you just said to your lost families... And let this word go forth. What you just said to your lost family is they have become God of the day for you. They are more important than you than the God who's going to get you into heaven by staying home because family and friends are visiting from out of town. Let them lay in the sack and sleep in. You get up and come as a witness. Amen. Don't let... People that don't love God dictate what you're going to do in your home and how you're going to live in your home. You get up and do the right thing and let them live with the results. And when they stand before God one day, they'll give an account of the fact that they had a witness right in their face that they ignored. Don't compromise. Don't back up because, well, I got people in my family just don't understand and I don't want to offend them. I want to tell you something. They're offending God. 
And don't you add to the offense to God by staying home because they drove a long way to be here. Am I clear? Everybody okay? Nobody's throwing any rotten tomatoes. We'll keep moving on. All right, let's look at verse 30. And the people in the town found out, and they called out Gideon's dad and said, we want to kill your son. The men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which stood beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore, on that day, he named him Jeroboam, which means let the Lord contend against him because he had torn down his altar. I love what his father says. I think this was a wake-up call for his dad. Here's a Jewish man who has gotten his eyes off the Lord, who has not sought the Lord, and he's gone out, maybe he's making a little money on the side, built him a barbecue pit in the back, and got a bell altar and an Asherah pole, and everybody comes over after the ball games on Saturday and has a little bell worship, and he takes up a little offering to support his little altar and his little temple that he's got built out there, and, and he's compromised his life. And all of a sudden, his his son stands up and does something, and they come and say, hey, you need to bring your son out here. We're going to kill him for taking away our God. And his dad is smart enough to say, well, if your God's so big, why can't he defend himself? Isn't that exactly what Elijah does on Mount Carmel? So where's your God? By the way, I love what Living Bible says when Elijah starts taunting I get so much encouragement when I think that a prophet can taunt and make fun of people. Elijah starts taunting, and I love what the Living Bible says. What's wrong? Is your God gone to the bathroom? <laughs> Stuck in the stall? And he says, if Baal's God, let him defend himself. Let him stand up for himself. My God stands up for himself. He'll, he'll do what he says he's going to do. I believe in the promises of my God. Looks to me like your God came down pretty easy. I mean, I'm there, just me and just a handful of servants, and we knocked that sucker down pretty quick, built a new altar to God, cut the pole down, had some firewood to sell over, and then cooked an, cooked an offering with it. I, you know, didn't look like much of a God to me. In fact, nobody bothered us while we were doing it. And he says, the Lord will contend. Now, here are people that have gone into false worship that should have known better, and a wayward dad who is restored, he defended his son. Now, just, just let me camp here for a minute. I, I think what some dads need is kids to challenge them over their inconsistency. Now, I'm not trying to cause trouble in your home. But I know some men, I wonder what they'd do if, if their kids sat down by them and said, Dad, why do you never put anything in the offering? If you can't answer a five-year-old, then you're going to have a hard time explaining it to God. You know, I mean, I wish some kids that their parents bring them on Sunday morning, they go to Sunday school and everything, they've never once darkened the door of Kids Rock. I wish some kids would just go home and over Sunday lunch watch Dad gag over his food when he said, Dad, how come the preacher says come back on Sunday night and we never do? What would that do to you? 
What, what if a child said to a dad, Dad, how come we never pray over a meal? How come I've never heard you share your faith? How come I've never heard you talk about the Lord? How come you've never been able to answer a question about the Bible? You always send me to mom. Maybe some dads could learn some things by letting their kids ask them some hard questions. Could it be that while we as adults have more life experiences that sometimes our children and our young people have more experiences with God because they're still tender and they're still developing and they're still growing and they're still being nurtured and taught and they're receptive to the Word of God. Could it be that God's going to have to raise up a young boy or a young girl who challenges the religious moralism of their home with pure love for God, and that's the next Gideon that will be raised up to make a difference in this country. Could be. I think some of us would profit by remembering what it was like when we loved Jesus before we got around too many people that just acted like they loved Jesus and pretended that they loved Jesus. Or as Vance Havner said, if you sing it, you ought to mean it. It ought not just be words coming out of our mouths. I sent a tweet out yesterday that I think I don't remember exactly what I said in it, but I said I think we should be embarrassed over the Christianity that we've handed to our children because we have not handed a bold, strong faith across America. The average age of the average church in America is probably 60 and over, void of any youth, void of any children, because apparently they didn't have enough in their lives to make their kids want to stay in church after they left home. Something's got to change. Something's got to give. We're going to have to stand up and be better than we've been. Here's a man, a young boy, the youngest. I mean, you just think he's got to be sitting there tearing down that altar and say, if my big brothers find out what I've done, they're going to kill me. And if they don't kill me, my dad's going to kill me. But he did the right thing. He did the right thing, and God honored it. Mark it down. Obedience can have an incredible effect on the most unexpected people. I promise you, the last person Gideon thought would come to his defense was his father. The last person he thought that would stand up for him in a very bold act was his dad because there was nothing about his dad indicated in this story that his dad either believed in him or supported him and he certainly was going down a different path than his dad was going but his dad stands up and says let Baal contend he gives him a name he's a Baal fighter or a Baal conqueror he Gideon was living proof of the greatness of God over Baal and obedience can have incredible results on people you don't know you don't, know how, you don't know who's watching you. You never know who's watching you. You don't, you don't know who's sitting at the table next to you in a restaurant. You don't know who's sitting beside you. you. You don't know who overhears your conversations. 
that you could make a difference in somebody's life. We talked about uh, Barnabas this morning. Listen, this room is full of people that probably think of themselves as Gideons. I'm the least. There's so little I can do. But you do not know what effect you can have until you stand up without apology for Christ. You just have no idea. I look back over my life and I see people who took a wider road with less obstacles and many of them are not in the ministry today. You don't know who you influence. You don't know who you touch. You don't know who you encourage. You don't know whose life you change. You don't know how the little thing that you do that may seem insignificant in the big scheme of this great nation you don't know what that could do. You, you don't know who's going to be influenced by kids praying at school. You don't know who's going to be influenced by a Bible study on a college campus. You don't know because the story hasn't been written yet. Their story is not complete. You don't know what's going to happen when your kids go to youth camp and kids camp and when your kids are at, at Kids Rock. You don't know what God is going to birth in those moments. And it can have influence, and what they do impacts somebody else, which impacts somebody else. And it's a ripple effect. It's that Andy Andrews video of the person of the week. It's just that butterfly effect. It just keeps going out and out and out and out. Because somebody stood up somewhere and said, things have got to be different. Finally, there's the point of power, verses 34 and 35. This is a great verse. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Literally, that verse says the Spirit of the Lord clothed himself with Gideon. He just wrapped himself around Gideon. Now, let me give you the other references to that phrase. Some of the other references to that phrase. It's found in Genesis 28 and verse 20 of a man putting on clothes. And Paul picks up on this imagery when he talks about the armor of God, when he talks about that we take off the old man and put on the new man, when he talks about that in Colossians, that we are putting on Christ like we cast aside old clothes and we put on new clothes. In Isaiah 59 and verse 17, it's used of a soldier putting on armor. In 1 Chronicles 12 and verse 18, Amaziah, one of David's soldiers, was empowered in the same way. In 2 Chronicles 24, 20, it was used of Zechariah, the priest, who with boldness confronted the people in their apostasy. It, the secret of his life was the power of God was on him. Can, can I ask you to do something? Can I ask you to pray that you would have the kind of life that God could clothe himself in you? and in your kids, and in your grandkids. You see, it may be, it may be that if we would ask God to clothe us in his power and to clothe our children in his power and to clothe our children's children in his power, that there is yet one more that could be raised up to be the leader of a great revival. 
It could be a turning around of where this nation is heading. That video could be very real, both the beginning and the end. If God does something in our land, we could see a turnaround. I'm still, I mean, I usually see the glass half empty, but I'm still an eternal optimist when it comes to revival because I believe that before God comes to judge this world for the final time, he's one more time going to pour out his spirit upon all men. And he's going to raise up millions of people to share the gospel and to sweep millions into the kingdom. You know that there are more believers in China today than there are in America? And I'm talking about they're serious believers because they can go to jail for being believers. Let me just give you some final thoughts here. Number one, where God guides, he provides. Now, we're going to stop here with Gideon. The, the battle is ahead of us. But I love that story of the battle because it's just one of the great stories in all the Old Testament. But where God guides, he provides. You say, well, if God tells me to do something, how do I know that I'm going to be okay? Because where he tells you to go, he provides for you. He gave Gideon a promise. He told Gideon to stand on that promise. Secondly, God equips the called. And by the way, every one of us are called. The word called doesn't just have to do with vocation. It has to do with we've been called out by Christ. We've been called his children. We are part of his body. God equips the called. Thirdly, God empowers the called. He doesn't just call you and say, hey, God bless you. Go out there and do the best you can. Hope it all works out for you. If it doesn't, don't blame me. No, God empowers those that he calls. He empowers the called. And finally, God makes the weak strong. God makes the weak strong. Through my life, I've met some people that trusted God for provision, that were empowered and equipped and who were weak, and God made them strong. And their example is always an encouragement to me because they are living reminders to me that God keeps his word. Listen, I don't know on what scale, but there's a Gideon somewhere in Albany, Georgia, or in Leesburg, or Sylvester, or Dawson, or Smithville. There's a Gideon somewhere. He may not have been born yet, or she may not have been born yet. Maybe a Deborah somewhere. And we ought to be the kind of church that ignites an atmosphere where that kind of person can be emboldened to do great things for God. Amen? Amen. I mean, we ought to have the kind of environment where a young person with zeal and passion for God could say, I've got a whole church family behind me. I've got a whole church family praying for me. I'm not out here alone. I'm not out here by myself. I'm not the only one. 
There are all kinds of people that are behind me and supporting me and loving me and encouraging me and praying for me. Because one day we're going to pass the baton. All of us are. Some of us are older than others. And one day we're going to pass the baton to somebody. I hope we don't drop it before they get there. And I hope they carry it when they get it. But I want us to make sure we are the kind of church and the kind of people that a young boy or a young girl or a young man or a young woman in our youth group today could go out and if God called them to attack hell with a water pistol, they'd just go to Walmart right now and buy one and go at it. I think there's somebody like that. I think God's ready for somebody like that. I think he's looking for somebody like that. It won't be an angel of the Lord. It may be at a youth Bible study. It may be in a discipleship group. It may be in Kids Rock. It may be at youth camp or Disciple Now. It could have happened even, we didn't even know it, at Challenge Weekend this past weekend. But God's going to put his hand on somebody's shoulder and he's going to say, I'm with you. Go take on the enemy. And when he does, let's have enough sense to be what Gideon's father was after the Baal altar was torn down and say, I'm for him. I'm for them. I'm for the ones that are standing up. We have too many things that God is doing in this church with our children and with our young people for us to do anything else but to cheer them on and to stand by their side and to say to them, you need me in the battle, I'm here for you. I'm with you. Because some of them are going to be church planters. Some of them are going to be missionaries on foreign fields. Some of them are going to be like a Garrett Grubbs and a Ross Cook, and Stephen Durbin and Joseph Frazier and others that have grown up in this church and gone out to serve the Lord. Some of them are going to be really faithful deacons that are going to stand by their pastor and love them and pray for them and encourage them. Don't know who they're going to be. Don't know what they're going to be. But I can tell you this, we can create an environment that is hot for God raising up multiple Gideons in our midst that will go out and make a difference for Jesus Christ. Let's pray to that end. Mark's going to come and we're going to sing. We have some people to present tonight, some great new members of our family, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing a song we're all familiar with. Today, I choose to follow you. Today, I choose to give my life to you. Church family, listen. God's ready. I think God is just ready. He is anxious without sinning, ready for one to rise up and say, this is as far as we're going to be pushed. We're not backing up any further. We're moving forward with God. Draw the line in the sand and declare the distinction. We're children of God, child of the king, bought by the blood, and we're not ashamed of it. So let me pray, and then after I pray, we're going to stand and sing, and then some folks that are going to be presented uh, will come to this side over here, my left, your right, and uh, we'll have a chance to greet you and welcome you into the family tonight. Let's pray together. Father.
Lord, there may be a young man or a young woman in this room tonight or one that's over in Kids Rock or a baby in the preschool. It's going to be one that you choose to raise up out of all places, a little town like this. And they're going to make a difference. They're going to make an impact. They're going to have an influence beyond their ability to comprehend. Lord, I pray that every parent in this room could pray right now, Lord, let me have the home that would create that kind of appetite for God. I ask you, Father, for every grandparent that has to influence often from a distance, that they would be the kind of grandparents that bombard heaven on behalf of their grandchildren, that one of their grandchildren would be the kind of young man or young woman that could cut a huge path for the kingdom. Lord, today we have to choose to follow you because tomorrow there's a battle to face. Don't let us grow weary in the well-doing. For I pray it in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.